Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thanks for listening. My name is Scott Lowe. I'm your host at the Full Stack Journey. And my goal today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and in cloud environments. I'm very excited about today's guest. Joining me today is Gareth Rushgrove, and we're going to talk about some very exciting things like infrastructure as code and uh, continuous integration. Uh, Gareth, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, it's a pleasure. I, I've seen your name uh, in social media and, and uh, read articles that you've written, but uh, we've never had the opportunity to chat before, so it's really great to, uh, to have this opportunity. Yeah, same. I guess the, it's always nice to meet other people from the internet, even virtually. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, uh, Gareth, you know, I, I'd imagine, given the audience of the show, who primarily came out of my background in being in vSphere, and so they're very infrastructure-centric and that sort of thing, um, you know, they may not have a good feel, and even I don't necessarily have a really good feel for, for sort of where you're coming from. I know, you know, things you and I have talked about online and that sort of thing, but um, uh, why don't you just take a minute and kind of, you know, uh, or, or two or three, whatever, and uh, sort of share with the listeners, you know, a little bit about your background, where you are now, um, you know, what kind of things you're doing. And then you can also, if, if you are interested, share any sort of contact information, you know, hey, follow me on Twitter at blah, or here's my website, blah, whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess working backwards is probably easiest. So I'm uh, currently the uh, one of the directors of product at a company called Sneak. Basically, we're a, uh, building security tools for application developers. Is the short version. Growing startup based in all over the place at the moment. Uh, I'm based in Cambridge in the UK. Uh, I've been there for five, six months now. Prior to that, I was uh, at Docker, uh, working on the product side, mainly again on developer tooling. Before then, I was one of the principal software engineers at Puppet, so automation on the operation side. And before that, I used to work for the UK government, more on the IT side to a certain degree. I did some application development, ran an operations team as we built out GovUK. I did some, I guess, more consulting with different uh, government departments on automation, information security, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, very cool. I'm Gareth R. Pretty much everywhere on the internet. I guess Twitter's probably the place I'm most active. I also, and going back 10 years, which is a weird thing to say, was very much a developer, but working quite closely with a lot of operations folks, a lot of systems administrators, fell into the DevOps conversation really early. Um, so I wasn't at the first DevOps days, but I was at the second one, was sort of part of that early online community. And I started sending an email called DevOps Weekly uh, out. Um, in theory, every week that I've been sending that email down for like nine to ten years, uh, every Sunday, which is a weird thing to say. Oh, that's very cool, Gareth. I, you know, I, I had your name associated with DevOps. I hadn't put together after until you mentioned it. I was like, oh yeah, he was at Docker. Yep, okay. And then, oh yeah, I do remember seeing him associated with Puppet too. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't put two and two together as is so often the case. But um, uh, I, I did have that association. Um, I didn't have all that all that context and. Mm-hmm. Now I'm tempted to go subscribe to DevOps Weekly and, and start yeah. reading it. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, maybe we can include in the show notes uh, a link to where uh, listeners can subscribe to the, uh, the weekly uh, newsletter if they're interested. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so, uh, you know, what I, you and I chatted a little bit on Twitter. It's probably been, I don't know, a couple of weeks now. And I was talking about, I was looking into, you know, continuous integration, infrastructure as code. And so you and I exchanged a couple of notes or whatever. And, and it got me thinking about, you know, 
infrastructure as code is something that I've talked about here on the show. And I've had, I've had a few different guests on. I had a, uh, an SRE uh, when I was at Heptio prior to the acquisition. Uh, one of Heptio's SREs came on and talked about their use of Terraform and some of the things that uh, they were doing that was a little different in terms of, you know, your traditional Terraform usage, for example. And I've had other folks on talking about, you know, tools like Ansible and, and others, uh, various forms of, you know, trying to, trying to get um, infrastructure or configuration into code where it can be version controlled and, and we have some, you know, history of the changes and can roll back if necessary. All, all the sort of things that people talk about when they talk about infrastructure as code. But it wasn't until just recently, as I started looking more to build my own skill on the, on the CICD side, that I started thinking about, uh, you know, the application of, of things like integration testing and validation into um, infrastructure as code. And that's an area I'd, I'd like to talk about today. But before we do that, I wondered if you could just, you know, sort of share with listeners your perspective as somebody who's been involved in the DevOps community for um, quite some time. How important is infrastructure as code to sort of the average infrastructure-centric IT professional out there? I mean, is this really something they should be paying attention to? Um, I believe it is, but I'd be, you know, really curious to hear your perspective. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think infrastructure as code is definitely one of those, I guess, patterns that over the past 10 years, alongside like conversations around SRE and DevOps, it's been one of the sort of pillars of that um, sort of discussion. The The assumption that we can move the processes and practices and the things we do from being manual processes into uh, software and not just into some sort of black box software, but we can move it into source code. Um, and however that's described, you can get into lots of different tools there. There's uh, there've been, again, like different opinions about the different tooling in that space. But the advantages, I guess, of moving things into source code in some way, shape, or form, in you can start thinking about it from the point of view of software development. And there's a lot more like experience and knowledge and practice and tooling around software today than, than, than there ever has been. So patterns like um, version control, patterns like testing, even just the basics of that, that we take for granted if you're writing Java or Go or whatever programming language you might fancy. You just take these things for granted. And they have benefits that are hugely useful in for infrastructure. A really common uh, example and something that really resonated when I was back at the government with folks was just version control as a source of truth. Um, people had very convoluted or very sort of long form ways of who did what? When did they do it? It turns out the source control is basically the, a great answer to that problem. How do I know that I can trust it? How do I know that it's good? How do I know that it's going to do the right thing. Um, and again, well, the answer might be lots of manual testing and people and time. But actually, increasingly on the software side, we've said, let's build testing tools. Um, and so I think there's all these different parts of how do we go, how do we do the job at the scale that's been requested now with without adding lots more people and turning it into a software problem rather than a people problem is part of that. And infrastructure as code is really the banner we put on that movement, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I I completely agree. I think that there's so much room for improvement, even for smaller organizations. I, I run into a lot of smaller um, organizations as I go around and I speak at events or, or whatever the case may be, and you know they're like, "Oh, we don't, we're not big enough. We don't need to do something like that, right?" You know, that's only for the big companies. That's only for the 
you know, insert Fortune 500 here or whatever the case may be. And I, I think there's still so much room, I think even especially for those smaller organizations where you've got one or two individuals wearing multiple hats, right? And having to context switch between being the network person and the server admin, right? And if they were storing this information in, in a, a source of truth, you know, version control, and they were using infrastructure as code so they could add comments to what these, these you know, manifests or, or configurations or whatever term you want to use um, are doing, right? It, it seems like it would actually make it easier. It's not necessarily about making it faster because they may not need faster, but it would be making it easier, reducing sort of the mental overhead of what they're trying to juggle. I think some of it from the classic sysadmin perspective, though, is that ability to juggle so many different things is nearly the unique skill set of the sysadmin. And even just thinking about the the command line surface area for a typical uh, Unix, like it's huge. Systems administrators have, have been learning that and learning all the ins and outs of all these different bits. They're, they're always the people who want to look at something under the hood and see how it works. And I think context switching has often been a big part of that culture. I think, though, that in most organizations, they're constantly being asked to do more, and they're always on that, that verge of firefighting. And I think it's that slack that you can get from investing in automation that allows you to do the things you would, you know, you were never going to get able to do because you never, you you never had time, you never had the budget. How do you build the slack to do the, to do the backups, to redo the backups? You've done them, they're okay, but you know there are issues there. You want to make it better. Building slack into the system and really getting away from firefighting, I think, for the classic sysadmin are the main reasons to make that jump to automation. Some of that is also the ability to not have to do everything from scratch. The more you can reuse, not like not just a tool, but content around that tool. I think that that's where really the sort of like that starts to come true. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, uh, you know, I know I've talked with various other guests before about uh, automation initiatives, whether it was you know network automation or you know using a scripting language or whatever the case may be, and and they have brought up. Um, now that you mentioned it, they have brought up often that, you know, making room for that slack, that that margin to say, OK, now I'm going to work on things that are more strategic and more valuable rather than just being in constant firefighting mode. But we do have to battle that, you know, hero mentality, I guess you could say, uh, right, where you know, it's yeah. like, OK, I'm going to rush in and I'm going to know the secret you know, incantation on the CLI to fix it for you. Right. Um, rather than being a little more proactive. I think it was in uh, Keith Morris's Infrastructure as Code book that they talked about this, this sort of circle where uh, people start using automation. Um, and I, I might have the, the credit uh, wrong. Um, I apologize to anyone out there if I do have it wrong. But talk about the, using this, you know, starting automation and then you know having a mistake made with automation. And so people get afraid of using automation, which means them less likely to do it and so on and so forth, right? And I think that's where we can begin to 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 bring in what I was talking about earlier with infrastructure as code is bringing in some some sort of testing or validation methodology and 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 providing some assurance to the folks who use infrastructure as code, especially newer users, that it is going to do what you think it's going to do and not more or not something different. And I was yeah. wondering if you could just talk for a minute about you know like your perspective as having a lot of experience in application development, you know. Does that seem reasonable? And do you think that, that, you know, folks who are just starting down an infrastructure as code sort of path, how important is it that they go ahead and, and add 
you know, infrastructure uh, testing, integration testing and validation if they're already having to learn the infrastructure's code tooling itself? Like, are, do those have to go hand in hand or, or could you do like, you know, one and then the other? Like, I'm just curious on your thoughts there. I think you can, you can definitely do this one than the other. You can definitely learn like automation in general and uh, then learn some of the higher level practices in exactly the same way you can do with application development. A lot of it comes down to the context you're doing something in and the costs incurred. I think one of the sort of things that people start going like, I, I like this automation thing is the, the, the ability to do many things at once. I'm less common now because I think most people have sort of come up with some level of automation. But the idea of doing something across a hundred machines or a thousand machines or even more is something that would historically have, t- have been, well, no, we need to plan this out. We need to think about this a lot versus something that might be a one-liner in sort of more modern automation tools. Uh, obviously, with that sort of power comes the ability to do a huge amount of damage really quickly. Um, and it is that sort of building confidence in the in your use of the tool, but also in the tool itself. You can build quite complex applications. And I guess the I'm going back, I'm, well, PHP or WordPress or like Drupal, they didn't start with sort of test-driven development. They were still evolving practice at the time. But people still built complex applications out of code. But as we've become, I guess, more used to collaborating between different people, I think that's sometimes that communication between teams or individuals within teams. That's often where you start going, actually, no, we need to be a bit more formal about how we write software. Testing is part of that. Because suddenly it's not all just about what's in one person's head, it's in what's in two people's heads. And the disconnect between those two people can be where you end up with those mistakes that are made. Tests help you communicate and reason about that. Um, and it's true on the infrastructure side as well. I definitely, I think you can, most of the infrastructure tools that are built from the purposes point of view of the, the operator are definitely something that you can often replace your your custom shell scripts with first. That's often the first step I've seen people take. Um, they have custom tooling. They're having to maintain what was what started out as quite clean, but is now a sort of messy framework of scripts contributed by different people. And you can often replace those with something that's a bit more structured, that has more community around it, that has training and developer tooling around it. Um, and then you get into sort of more of the practices around how do we centralize maybe the execution environment? How do we get into testing that? How do we get into sending all of the logs into one place? All of these are, are really common application development uh, challenges as well. So it sounds like, you know, and, and and the reason I ask is, again, you know, a lot of the, I, I anticipate the, a, f- a fair number of my listeners for this particular show are, are probably going to be new to infrastructure as code or, or have only dabbled in it, maybe dip their toe in it, something like that, right? Which is hard for folks who have been doing it for a long time, you know, such as yourself and 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 myself to a lesser degree. But <clears throat> we we get in that mindset where we're like, oh yeah, everybody's doing this because I've been doing it for so long, and there's this you know huge group of people, right, that um, that aren't aren't there yet. Um, it's uh, easy as uh, technologists for for us often f- to forget that. But um, <clears throat> it sounds like you know for folks who are who are getting started on the infrastructure as code journey with whatever tooling, it doesn't really matter what the tooling is, that they can, <clears throat> much in the same way that a, you know, sort of a, a novice programmer would get started, working on the on the code side of it, working on, you know, this Terraform configuration or Ansible playbook or, you know, the type script or JavaScript stuff with Pulumi or whatever, you know, they're using, right? And then add some testing 
later on, sort of as they move a little farther along the maturity curve. It's not something they have to do sort of right off the bat. Um, But I think it it certainly does sound like it is a, uh, a worthy destination to add on that journey. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I also think that it can get easier. Like with, I guess, such sort of new programming languages, and they'll, they'll often start with a very basic testing sort of setup or a limited sort of set of tools for testing. And that can, testing might not even be a first class part of the language. It might be something that's added on. That can then make it sort of more of a barrier to entry. I think picking tools, like now I'm, I lean towards tools and programming languages actually that make testing natural because I think then the progression is easier to jump from, oh, right, I, I understand how this works to I understand how to test it. So I think we're seeing, I guess, more modern tools really consider testing as a first-class part of the, the tool set in the same way as um, PHP did not start out with uh, testing built in Java it, it was really with JUnit coming along as a separate standalone entity. And you now look at more modern languages. Um, uh, Go is a good example. Go very clearly has a opinionated way of testing built right in there into the standard library. And I think we're seeing a similar evolution, I guess, on the side of infrastructure tools. The testing of infrastructure was, I guess, there were like people were certainly doing so back with CF Engine, back with I really even just their sort of custom framework. But I think the Puppet and Chef communities collaboratively, um, actually a lot of uh, around configuration management camp and the community that grew up around that, really pushed the tooling out there. This was sort of at the same time as GitHub was really on the rise. Actually, Aspect Puppet came out of GitHub and Tim Sharp, the work Tim Sharp did there and others. Like, but they were sort of the generation of tooling that was built on top of what was already there. I think some of the, the newer tools, you're starting to see testing as a first-class part of it. Um, easier with things that are based on general-purpose programming languages like CDK or Pulumi. But even with uh, some of the DSL tools now, like Q, uh, actually have testing built in just into the uh, toolings themselves. So that's a, a very natural segue into sort of the, the next part of the discussion, which is actually talking about tools, right? Um, I, I think that you know this is certainly an area for for myself to learn because I'm, I'm, I'm starting on this journey of really trying to make testing a more integral part of my own infrastructure as code efforts. Uh, but I, I, I would imagine that, you know, a lot of the listeners are as well is like, you know, what sort of tools are out there? You're like, um, I'm sure there's, you know, a huge, uh, you know, variety of tools and we can't cover them all, but I was just curious if you'd be willing to share some of, some of the tools that you've used for testing and validation. Um, you mentioned Q. Um, but I was wondering what others, and then we can, you know, just kind of spend a, a little bit of time here talking about them and, you know, resources for, you know, listeners if they want to get started on or something like that. Yeah, certainly. So the configuration complexity clock concept, there's this idea that if you start thinking about configuration um, in a pretty general sense, uh, often that starts out as sort of a hard-coded list um, of uh, configuration settings or whatever it might be, just really built into the application. Um you start to externalize that out maybe into some sort of configuration file. And so you've just got data separate and you can share that separately. At some point, you start actually having to manage loads of these files. And maybe you move towards sort of basic templating. Maybe you move towards actually a domain-specific language. Um, Maybe you move towards uh, even further around a sort of rules-based engine for determining like uh, the sort of ins and outs of your configuration. 
the reality is there are configuration tools, configuration management tools that sit at various different points on this clock. And what testing looks like in different parts of that vary. Um, on the testing tool side, I think there's, again, sort of two types of tooling. And historically, I think a lot of this has grown up around very tool-specific testing tools. So I mentioned RSpec Puppet. Um, on, there was also uh, Puppet Cucumber back in the day. Um, Chef Spec was a, a tool in the Chef ecosystem. Test Kitchen grew out of the Chef ecosystem, but has been useful for sort of integration testing. Because we can talk about unit testing and integration testing and linting in the same way for configuration. Um, so there's definitely that sort of, I guess, set of tools. More recently, I think we what we've seen on the when it comes to configuration, though, is we're using a lot more, frankly, a lot more YAML, a lot more static data. Um, uh, maybe there's some templating there, maybe not. But I mean, Kubernetes has really sort of popularized, I guess, for good and ill, YAML as a just a, as a way of encoding that configuration. You see TOML, you see INI files, you see other formats, but you're seeing a lot of hand-authored like, and copy and pasted uh, Kubernetes configurations and, and similar object models at the, uh, at the moment. And historically, there's not really been good testing tools there. More recently, myself and a bunch of folks have been using the Open Policy Agent project. So Open Source Project housed at the, with the CNCF under Linux Foundation. It's a generic uh, basically policy engine um, with a DSL for writing tests, basically writing policies. Uh, myself and a few people have been writing basically a nice, really a nice cli use, the client to use that library called ConfTest, short for configuration test. Really just a way of giving you a nice developer experience for writing tests against arbitrary structured data. And configuration is definitely the main like target for that. So you can now use this Rego language to write tests against your INI files, your JSON files, your YAML files. You can get output that's useful from a debugging that sort of testing uh, output that's useful in your CI system. Also, we're trying to build a, a sort of an ecosystem there that makes it easy to share those tests. There's definitely an overlap between, I guess, policy and testing and monitoring when you start talking about operations and configuration and uh, infrastructure as code. Some things are going to be domain specific. They're going to be about your organization. Some of them are going to be actually just good good practice. So in the Kubernetes context, are you setting CPU limits and memory limits? Are you running privileged containers without sort of specifying a good reason? There's all these sort of good practice things on the security standpoint relevant to some of the work I'm doing at the moment that probably everyone should be doing. So being able to like, I mean, obviously, I can write those tests, and anyone can write those tests themselves. But we really get better together if we can build a, a tools that allow to share those. Like, so you've got a domain expert; they write the tests once, and actually, as an end user, you can benefit from testing at the same time as not having to be the domain expert, not having to write the tests. I think that's the best on ramp to testing your configuration for most people. It's not writing tests; it's actually using other people's tests for common problems. Well, and it sounds like that would parallel the whole reason for, for going to some sort of external, you know, tool, right? Um, you, you had mentioned earlier, you know, that one of the most common sort of things that you see folks doing is moving from their sort of homegrown collection of scripts, right, into a more structured tool to do these things. And, and one of the benefits for doing that is, you know, there's a community, there's support, there's training, there's 
And there's examples, right? You know, if we talk about Ansible, yeah. there's your Ansible Galaxy. If we talk about Terraform, there's the Terraform module registry. You know, Puppet has you know, Puppet yeah. Forge, right? Um, it, we could go on and on. But, um, yeah. you know, these these users are getting the benefit of sort of the scale of, of uh, users um, using the thing. And so it sounds like the idea of, of a, a adapting a tool or, or adopting a tool like ConfTest, which is built on OPA or, or others, um, would be that, users could, as you said, take advantage of other people's tests. They don't have to write their own, but they could look at this uh, library, if you will, right, um, of, of tests that people have written and contributed and, and used for common use cases. And the, the example you mentioned in Kubernetes is making sure you're setting, you know, requests and limits is a great example, you know, or making sure that things are assigned labels or making sure that, you know, you're, you're pulling from uh, an approved registry or, you know, again, yeah. we could go on and on and on, right? Um, yeah. I, and I think what's interesting there is that the if you if you took sort of ten operators of the same software and that are experts in its configuration, and you said to them, "What are the ten things you always do to start with?" You can turn those into tests. And the interesting thing there as well is, I think if you asked ten people of a similar level of experience with that tool, you'd have a lot of overlap in what those ten things they always make sure people do are, and um, fix it. I think when it comes to operations, there's a lot more consistency uh, between different organizations. Um, maybe not in the macro sense of the architecture and how everything's wired together, but how you're configuring specific um, like services, probably a lot more overlap than certainly the business logic of two very different organizations. I think there's there's a lot more portability there when it comes to the configuration. And I think that means there's even more benefit to shared testing in that space than maybe there is in like a Java application space or a Ruby space. So there's potentially even more benefits on the infrastructure side to good testing tools, especially if they facilitate sharing than on the application side. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, because there, there are a lot of pretty common infrastructure patterns that would be the same across any number of applications, even if those applications might have very, very different business logic. You, know, you might still have sort of the classic three-tier app, right? Even if the behavior of that app is very, very different across two different, you know, instances or whatever, they're still going to look the same or very, very much the same from an infrastructure perspective. Yeah, exactly. And and we we also are having, I guess, as an industry, have been good about documenting those, but we write them down in uh, blog posts and documents and white papers, um, and they're great for people to read. They're not good for machines to read, and so. W- we all read the same document, and then we go and implement that. Um, and suddenly, our implementations—well, a—they they, they cost us each. I mean, like, we didn't have to learn and become the expert so that that blog post or that white paper was really useful. But we all needed to go away and implement it. Um, how can we get some of the implementation out of that document? And again, the answer is obviously source code. Yeah, although there's an interesting side road we could take here because I think about my own experience when I was learning Terraform and I would go off and I would write my own Terraform modules, but I was doing so for the purpose of, of learning. Right. And I felt that if I reused other people's stuff, I didn't necessarily understand. It was kind of, it was somewhat of a black box, even though it's written in, you know, in, in, in HCL. Right. And that's well-documented and, you know, you can go and look up all the, all the pieces. It almost, for me anyway, felt like, I could be more effective at supporting Terraform if I understood yep. better what was going on. So there's that balance there. I don't know if, if you 
have seen that or, or agreed with it, if it's just, you know, sort of me, right? I mean, absolutely. People learn in different ways. But certainly for me, learning something involves writing and building something. Um, I, I think, I'm going to say 20, more than 20 years ago, I built a, uh, a, a software to basically manage a mailing list. And it turns out even 20 years ago, there was still software that managed mailing lists. And they, it, all the software that managed mailing lists definitely did a better job than the software I wrote. Uh, I, I hope that code's not anywhere online because I'm sure it had some very large security problems. And it certainly didn't scale. and It wasn't performant. But it was actually one of the first things I really wrote and put on the internet. And actually, it ran a couple of mailing lists for a, a little while. Again, like the best thing for me to do and the best thing for the mailing lists that this software ran to do was probably not to have written a mailing list bit of software. But by doing so, I did like, I, I learned a whole bunch about email and, and software development and deploying something. And I think there's, I think realizing that like why you're doing something is important. If you're doing something to learn, that's different. I think there's sometimes you end up with a bit of a sunk cost there that you, you invest the time to learn, but then you're scared of throwing it away. And sometimes the right thing is to do something to learn and then not use that thing because there is a better alternative. And now you know how that alternative works. You can reason about it a lot better. I think sometimes we get trapped in, uh, we, have to, we have to use the thing we built to learn to validate the cost in learning, which I, don't, I think is sometimes a bit uh, dangerous. I would agree with that. And I think that's, as, as you were talking, I was, I was coming to exactly that same conclusion. That is like, I think it's fine to, to you know, have to write something yourself because you want to learn whatever tool it is, right? Whether it's a testing tool or whether it's an infrastructure as code tool, or if, if it's even a programming language, right? I mean, our discussion is centric around infrastructure as code, but I mean, the principle I think is the same. It's yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. And, and, but then that, that that's kind of like, as you progress along the maturity curve and you become more familiar with the tool um, and you understand that the, you know, the intricacies of the tool and the particular language or, or, or DSL that it uses or whatever, then you can begin to switch, as you pointed out, to something, you know, purpose written to accomplish this thing rather than your own custom thing. Um, yeah. because it's, it's, it was, it's better, right? You, you well, the thing that you did was useful for learning, but now that you understand it, you can, you can switch to, you know, reusing somebody else's work, for example. Well, also, I think you get, and again, on that maturity curve, and again, similar to how you use third-party software libraries, you get better at judging what's good. Uh, let's take templating from a programming language perspective. I, I'm using Python and I want a templating language. Well, it turns out there's loads of them. Uh, well, they have different APIs. Some of them might be maintained or not. Some of them might have it, like, like bring in lots of dependencies. Some of them just I might not like for some reason. Uh, some of them might be licensed in a way that means I can't use it. There's all these things we're just used to thinking about when we choose software libraries. As you mature on like your use of infrastructure as code tooling, you go through the same thing. You're like you will absolutely sometimes regret your choices of uh, uh, modules or cookbooks or uh, like third-party code that you chose to use. Um, it's about how you use that, how it how and how do you swap it out? And, and you just grow as a, I, I guess, as, an, as a software engineer um, at the, in the same way as you do for any programming language. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So um, I'm watching the clock. I know that you have some schedule constraints. So as much as I would love to, to park here and have to, cause I'm really enjoying this discussion. Um, uh, I want to move on a little bit and, and let's try and I was hoping maybe we could try and provide some real practical advice to folks who might be interested in sort of 
um, you know, getting started down this path, right? They're, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm learning infrastructure as code. I'm beginning to use this. I see the benefits and I want to begin to do more, you know, testing or validation. It sounds like, uh, based on our earlier discussion that, you know, there's, there's lots of different tools that exist at lots of different places. So I was wondering if, you know, is it, would it be reasonable to say that, Hey, like one place to start would be just doing some basic validation of your, of your code, right? Whether it's a linting tool or, um, something else, right. That's relatively low impact. You know, it, it's not, doesn't necessarily require that you learn a lot of additional things, but you can at least validate that what you're writing is appropriate and correct for whatever tool you're using. And then we begin to move into maybe tools like ConfTest or others that will test for specific conditions as opposed to just checking syntax. And then maybe there's a, you know, like a third tier of, of something. I don't really know what that something is. Maybe you can like um, share something there that, that does something more, you know, like validates that what you intended to do is what actually happened, for example. Yeah, certainly. It, it's definitely that progression. And that, that was certainly what I guess we found in the puppet community and the chef community. That was the, that was how you got people value most quickly and people sort of bought into the value of testing at the same time. So finding tools, yeah, finding uh, syntax validators and linters and introducing those. The reason being is basically that you can, that they don't require configuration. Um, it's just simply a, st a step in your pipeline um, and it's the same for everything. So it's really easy to roll out across all of your whatever configuration files you might be using. And it doesn't catch all of the problems, but it catches them really quickly. So that fast feedback, that really early, early stage, zero configuration, just is, I think, the, the value there. So yeah, look for, I'm sure there's a, a lint around Ant, Antspol, there's certainly Puppet Lint. Uh, Food Critic is a good one in the Chef ecosystem. I maintain uh, KubeVal, uh, which is basically a syntax checker for Kubernetes configuration files um, that's quite popular. Um, I'm sure there's like a Terraform linting tool, or if there's not actually one built into Terraform itself. But yeah, searching for your tool and linting or valid like validation, um, you'll generally find some good examples. It's a common pattern at this stage. I'd say that the next stage is really is around unit testing if in the sort of programming context. And yeah, there you're needing to write some tests to assert some something specific about the content of the configuration you're writing. Uh, again, contest is good as a gen generic, any structured data. But also, if you find tools that are more aligned with your specific programming language, so if you're writing in Pulumi or you're using CDK, then like, well, you, you can write tests in Python or TypeScript. That works just as well. There are examples there. TerraTest, I think, is a dedicated Terraform testing tool. Um, Comptest supports HCL more generically. Uh, so there are definitely unit testing tools. I think the third area is probably what I call integration testing. And yeah, that tends to mean really often bringing up a sort of ephemeral target for actually executing that configuration against and then really asserting, like getting that back out of some API or some behavior of that system. Again, this depends a little bit on what technologies you're using, uh, but probably the most commonly used ones I've seen are Test Kitchen, really is the... Is the unit of like, it will basically provision dynamically uh, a VM automatically under the hood based on some basic inputs, and then it will run some tests and then we'll tear it down. So it's really easy to automate and it's designed for that sort of integration testing of infrastructure. There's some tooling growing up around uh, Kubernetes. I've not seen anything that's quite 
end user centric yet around kind. Um, kind certainly makes it really easy to script this sort of thing. I think it would be great to see the next stage where we automate some of the testing. There's certainly like integration testing tools for uh, AWS. So you can, I, I've in the past run Terraform against ephemeral AWS instances and run, I think there's an RSpec helper in Ruby for AWS. There's likely other ones there. Server spec and actually inspec um, from the chef folks are a good, interesting tools here as well. Um, I've not, I, I've not seen, oh, there's test infra on the Python side. I've not seen any really mature examples sort of past those points, but there's, there's certainly tools in that sort of infrastructure integration testing space. Um, the downsides there are just simply slower feedback, I guess, slightly more brittle infrastructure and harder to test certain types of environment versus deploying them and having good deployment automation and, and testing there. But there's certainly value there for, uh, especially I think if you're, writing software to distribute to others versus writing software to uh, use yourself in a sort of single instance model. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that, that progression of tooling, right, um, you know, now that I've thought about it and, and you and I have chatted about it, it, it's, it, it totally makes sense. It, it, it completely is, is natural. It's, it's a, you know, putting the right tool at the right place, using it for the right thing. And there's a, there's a really easy sort of step function, if you will, for lack of a better term, for people to to move along. Like I can use this no configuration linting syntax checking tool. Then I can move to something that requires a little more effort with unit testing. And then I can move to something which is a little more <clears throat> involved for this sort of integration testing, right? But it, it mirrors their own personal growth and development uh, of using whatever tool you know they are using for, for infrastructure as code. Um, all right, Gareth, this has been a fantastic conversation, but I am mindful of, of your time constraints. Um, and we are coming up on um, the normal, you know, sort of content length that we, we shoot for, um, before I close up, I just wondered, you know, are there any, you know, really quick final thoughts that you, you wanted to share with listeners like, Hey, watch out for this or Hey, don't do that. And if you have nothing, that's okay. Cause we've had a great conversation. I, I, I think probably the, maybe we touched on peripherally, but I, I would say getting this into CI pipelines, actually making it part of the automated workflow is definitely one of the things to sort of do earlier. The more it's just automatically happening for everything, the more value you'll get more quickly. And I think as you like as you go through that progression of different tools, the more value you get out, the easier it is to justify going to the next stage. They don't generally require lots of effort on the part of all the other people writing configuration. And I think that's the other thing that's happening around, I guess, configuration management in general is what we're seeing is configuration used to be something which was very much the preserve of the sort of the sole operator or the singular individuals within uh, infrastructure teams. I think we're seeing that pushed out to development teams. And that's why getting, like talking about infrastructure as code and talking about testing in that context and talking about getting that into CI is so important because we're seeing it distributed across more people. We're seeing it distributed across teams and we're seeing it pushed out to people who aren't always the domain expert. And I think that's actually the role I see a lot for those operators that have maybe traditionally both been the domain expert and the person who edited that configuration is that the last part, the latter part isn't something they're now responsible for. There's just too much configuration and, there are, and it's been pushed out to developers, but they are the domain experts and how you scale your domain expertise becomes really important and getting that domain expertise into tests and get it into CI, I think is the best way of 
interact, like bringing your expertise to developers. Because the alternatives, which are basically uh, acting as a gate, uh, having to review everything, that's probably not going to scale very well or allow you to take breaks. Or just writing documents and hoping people read them. I like writing documents. Not everyone reads them. Doesn't scale as well either. Yeah, CI is definitely the tip that I would give that we didn't dig too much into. Yeah, I would I would actually love to have a whole separate episode on CI. I just got to find the right guest. Um, <clears throat> because I think, I, I agree with you, I think that's a critically important part that's missing, especially for this audience, for folks who are just getting started in this journey. And they're probably thinking, oh, I can do that later on. But there, it sounds like, um, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of value that could be derived by, by doing this earlier rather than later. So, yeah. all right, uh, Gareth, this has been a fantastic conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, being on the show. I think listeners are really going to enjoy um, uh, this episode. Um, uh, real quick in closing, uh, online contact information again for people who want to stalk you online. Uh, on Twitter, I can be found as uh, Gareth R, so G-A-R-E-T-H-R. Um, and that on most of the rest of the internet, in fairness as well. Okay. Um, same on, on GitHub. Fairly active on a few open source projects there as well. Perfect. Great. Thanks, Gareth. Listeners, thanks for joining uh, today. I, I appreciate you giving um, me a little bit of your time. I hope that the episode and the discussion we had here with Gareth around infrastructures code and and uh, testing and validation is useful and it uh, gives you some information to streamline your own journey of learning to help you improve your skills and and pick up new things. As always, you're welcome to uh, to tweet at the podcast, uh, at FSJ Podcast on Twitter. Uh, you can reach me, your host, Scott Lowe, at Scott underscore Lowe on Twitter. Um, and uh, the podcast is available on packetpushers.net or on any other variety of platforms, um, including iTunes and others. If you do enjoy the show and you have an opportunity to leave us a, uh, a rating or a review, we would certainly appreciate that. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.